Well, Passover begins tomorrow at sundown. It's the story of God delivering the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and it is the quintessential freedom story. In fact, many say it's the main inspiration behind the Enlightenment, the American Revolution, and the Civil Rights Movement. Here's the thing. While the overarching theme of Passover holiday is freedom, many parts of the Seder, the ritual meal eaten on Passover, contain deeper meanings. Jewish sages believe that by tapping into these deeper meanings and acting on them, a person can improve themselves so that they might go out and improve the world. So what are these deeper and hidden meanings? Here to shed some light on the subject is Rabbi Amy Bernstein. She's rabbi of Kahilat Israel in Pacific Palisades. Uh, Palisades. Uh, rabbi, welcome to the morning shift. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So there's a lot to unpack here. L- let's start with this this whole concept of the story of Passover, the this the deliverance, you know, the, the notion that God, this supremely powerful being, intervenes in the history to liberate uh, powerless people. Uh, it's a universal story, not just a Jewish story from the beginning. And I'm wondering why why from the beginning is this a universal story? I think it's a you know Jewish story, a piece of our mythological history that um, certainly applies universally because it talks about universal truth. Mm-hmm. So the the truth about slavery and the fact that um, there are slaves even today, there's about 30 million slaves around the world today. Um, so slavery is a universal truth. It has been uh, always, really. Um, and the ability to imagine something different, to imagine a world, to imagine oneself uh, different is a supreme act of courage. So, you know, those are things, and then the courage it takes to actually change one's life, to take the risk, to walk into the unknown, to walk into what's unfamiliar, um, you know, a brand new reality, all of that, and the risk that that takes. So mm-hmm. all of that is a universal set of um, facts and realities. This is our way of talking about how, in our own mythic imagination, um, that unfolded and continues to unfold. Yeah, and as I mentioned, uh, it's been used, uh, it's it's the inspiration, I should say, behind things like the, the American Revolution and certainly the Civil Rights Movement. When you hear uh, gospel songs, Let My People Go, uh, Bring Us Out of Bondage, it's referring to this story. And, and not only that, Egypt and Pharaoh, they've been used as metaphors for oppression by freedom movements for a very long time. And then there's that Hebrew right. word, for Egypt, which is uh, Mitzrayim, a reference to what is essentially, I think, a mindfulness exercise. Give us a deeper explanation of that word. Sure. So the, in Hebrew, in the Bible, in Torah, there's no vowels. The, the Hebrew language is not vocalized uh, in the text. Mm-hmm. And what that means is you can, move, you can move the vowels around or completely change them. And if you take huh. the word Mitzrayim, if you take those consonants, Mitzrayim, you because it's only the consonants in the Torah as it's written. You could re-pronounce it, and the rabbis, as a spiritual teaching, purposefully misread it, and they change the vowels to Mitzrayim. So we were delivered not from only Mitzrayim mm-hmm. from Egypt, but Mitzrayim from the narrow places. Tzar in Hebrew is narrow and. So we're delivered also every year from the narrow, constricted places. So, so that is, that seems like it has. Uh, when, when you say that narrow, constricted places, uh, what would people think of in their own lives? I mean, is that is that part of that 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 you think of? Okay, here is where I am now. Where where is this place that I am now? 
Absolutely. So wh- where are the places that we're stuck? You know, where, where are the places that we uh, have such a narrow vision, such a narrow view that we truly aren't free to make choices because we've locked ourselves into such a narrow view of either a situation or a person or our own potential, our own possibilities. And when we're stuck there, um, we're not free to make positive change or a positive choice. We're just mostly reacting. Um, and all the ways that we've kind of um, wedged ourselves in, and we're a very binary culture right now in America, 2015, for instance. You know, it's yes, no, right, wrong, liberal, conservative, mm-hmm. um, black, white. And there's very little room for nuance. And we get really polarized and really stuck on either ends of really important conversations um, because we don't have the ability to move. We are talking about some of the meanings behind the Passover with Rabbi Amy Bernstein. She is Rabbi of Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. So so what you were just talking about, it sounds like a self-evaluation, an examination. And I'm wondering, is that coupled with a plan of action? So the, yeah, I think that's kind of the point of the Seder is um, that we begin the tale in slavery and we end... Um, even though we're doing it most of the evening anyway, we, we end, you know, on, we're eating in basically the Roman fashion. The Seder is based on a Roman meal. Mm-hmm. There's only three people in Rome, and only about a third of the population in Rome would have been legally free. Um, and so those people could lounge around and have this amazing many-course meal. So the whole Seder itself is actually an expression of our status as free people, but telling the story of of enslavement is about we shouldn't ever forget, and we're supposed to actually taste and eat our history on Passover so that we don't forget what it is to be stuck, what it is to be enslaved, what it is to be oppressed, um, so that we can continue to make sure we're doing the evaluations we need to um, this spring, this year in our lives, so that we are um, both helping to move ourselves into a place of liberation and freedom and um, growth, as well as to make sure that we're working on behalf of those who are still oppressed in this world, um, because it's a huge act of empathy to say we were slaves, and to say, therefore, I can't ever look at someone else who's oppressed mm-hmm. and suffering and and otherize them. You know, to say that, that if they would just pull themselves up by their bootstraps, they would be fine. You know, our story is that it took something much bigger than our own effort in our own will to do that, and that we need to make sure we're working on behalf of the people in this world who haven't experienced redemption yet. Speaking of the meal, I want to get to uh, perhaps the most identifiable symbol of Passover and Seder, and that is the matzah. But I want to back up a little bit. Uh, The opposite of matzah is the chametz. What is that? Yeah, what does it stand for? So chametz is actually the the word that um, means leaven. So it's something that's that's leavened, that that's that's risen, mm-hmm. and for something to rise, for bread in the ancient world to rise, I mean in any world, <laughs> yeast, you know, you need an activator, something that's going to make rise the dough rise, um, and if you only use new grain in the springtime, this is the wheat harvest in ancient Israel. The Passover happens at the time of the wheat harvest, and if you're only using grain from the new harvest, you don't have sourdough. You don't have something to make it rise mm-hmm. the same way. 
um, so it's about using, it's about turning to what's new, turning to what's trying to grow, turning to um, something different than what we've, you know, been doing for the last 11 months. Um, and so we get rid of the chametz, we get rid of all of the old, we get rid of last year's grain, we get rid of crumbs, we get you know, rid of the detritus of our lives from the last year, uh, and we start clean, we start fresh, we start with unleavened uh, bread. And for the rabbis, it was also a metaphor, a spiritual metaphor, about we get rid of what's puffed up about ourselves, we get rid of what is ego-central, and, you know, those things that are um, about luxury and attachment to luxury and some kind of image of oneself that is about entitlement to that kind of luxury. And um, that that's a, a really difficult thing for us to do, is to detach ourselves from that. And if, it, if you tried to go without eating any leavened anything for eight days yeah. and rely on matzah, you'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so <laughs> It's not easy. At the beginning of the Seder, matzah is called the bread of affliction, and, and by the end it's called the bread of freedom. Uh, how do we look at that transition on, on I guess, a, a more uh, personal level? I think that one of the greatest things about the rabbis' crafting of all of these rituals is that they were very aware that we're a both-and people, you know, not so much either-or. And that so at the same time we're calling the matzah that we eat lechem oni, the bread of oppression, the bread of affliction, um, and at that same meal we're calling it and eating it as the bread of liberation and the bread of redemption, and because really it's both. You know, it's, we have to get in touch with our suffering. We have to be in touch with the ways that we're still in pain. And each of us knows this. Each of us knows moments of suffering and, and helplessness and ways that we wish things could be different and we, they just aren't, and we struggle. And we have to eat that. We have to taste that. We have to be deeply aware and in touch with that before we can imagine something else and really um, activate those powers, those potentials, those energies that make for liberation, that make for change. And and then we have to eat that as well, and we have to really take that in as well, our ability to be actors in the world mm-hmm. and agents, uh, and that, that that's a demand of our tradition, is that we taste also the bread of freedom, and that we, out of our gratitude for that, make sure that we are doing what we need to to change the rest of the world as well. You know, uh, Rabbi Bernstein, over the years I've been invited and have attended uh, more than a few seders, and I've always wondered, and I never asked anybody there, but I've always wondered why uh, Moses is is hardly mentioned in the Haggadah, which is the book you read uh, for Seder. Yeah, I think one of the reasons that it's, it's, very, it's very easy for us as people to turn to a hero, to turn to a deliverer, to turn to somebody who's going to do it for us. And I think the rabbis were very smart and very nervous about having too much focus on the leader of the movement, because that somehow relieves us of some of the responsibility um, for what we have to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this whole act of eating the bread of affliction and eating the maror, the bitter herbs, and tasting suffering is an act of deep and radical empathy. And it's to empathize with you know, those who are suffering, and then that moves us to change. It moves us to do something. It moves us to resist the status quo. But if we look to a deliverer, if we look to 
a Moses to do it for us, we can get very lazy very quickly. So in other words, hey, you're on your own, do it yourself and sort of help yeah, others do it, do it as well. Yeah. You just know, one of the things that, that has been added is an orange to the traditional Seder plate. What, what's the story behind that? There's a lot of versions of this story, and there's a lot of arguing about the actual original story, but <laughs> the way I understand it, um, having gotten to as much at the bottom of it as I can, is um, Susanna Heschel, who's the daughter of um, our amazing scholar and teacher of blessed memory, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, one of our greatest thinkers and writers and philosophers, she was at a national conference of Jews where there was a hot debate going on about um, women rabbis and women teaching and women being public figures in Jewish life. And one of the people stood up quite angry, and one of the men stood up very upset and said um, that a woman belongs on the bima like an orange belongs on the Seder plate. Ah, so it was a reaction to that. (laughs) Exactly. So many of us now put an orange on our Seder plate um, to say, well, you know, if that's, you know, what, what it looks like, then so be it. And it sounds like our, our act of defiance, right? Our act of um, standing up and saying it doesn't just because this is the way it's always been doesn't mean it has to be understood that way now. And Passover is the perfect time to talk about ways that we want to challenge uh, the order of things. Well, given that, uh, it, it sounds like not everyone perhaps puts an orange on the Seder plate. Uh, correct. Yeah. Um, there's lots of different ways people have made the Seder um, really personal, you know, in terms of their own generation's experience. My grandparents put potato peels on the Seder plate, and it was to remember um, the people in the Holocaust who maybe made it one more day because they got potato peel in their soup Wow! Um, when they stood in line. And so um, it was that precarious, you know, life and death, and that we shouldn't ever take for granted this amazing meal that we're about to eat when so many of our people in our own memory um, suffered fates far worse than slavery. Rabbi, before I let you go, just very quickly, what's your favorite teaching from the Haggadah? I think one of the things I like um, the most in the Haggadah is um, is the way that Moses was saved. We talk about you know the birth of Moses, and um, we just said we don't focus on him so much. But I, what I do love about that story is it was all of these amazing, powerful, brave women who made his life possible, and therefore, you know, our story of of the Exodus possible. And it was, you know, women like his mother who uh, trusted enough to give him up and put him on the water. It was Pharaoh's daughter, someone right at the heart of the seat, you know, of the enemy, uh, who drew him out of the water, identified him as a Hebrew baby, and refused to see him as the enemy, um, was moved by compassion, was moved by his cries, and um, his sister, who stands on the riverbank and suggests that she get a wet nurse, the Pharaoh's daughter get a wet nurse, meaning suggesting that she might keep this baby. That was a radical act of chutzpah, you know, of mm-hmm. cheekiness by this slave girl to talk to the princess. And um, the midwives who defied Pharaoh, it's the first act of civil disobedience um, in recorded history. And there's just, there's so much about that story that I think we could use in our own time to to figure out how we can see each other differently and not be so quick to judge and not be so quick to differentiate ourselves from other people in ways that say, your experience has nothing to do with mine. Um, their, their act of compassion and radical act of hope and seeing the other as somehow relevant and deserving of their compassion 
meant that the whole hall of power had a crack at the center. And it came tumbling down because of this one crack that was about light and about love and about respect. Uh, And that crack let enough light in that the whole thing um, cracked wide open and we have our the rest of our history that flows from there. And when you think about it, uh, the center of the, all of that really, uh, a woman, Pharaoh's daughter. Rabbi Amy Bernstein talking about some of the meanings behind the Passover story. Passover begins tomorrow at sundown. Rabbi Amy Bernstein, Rabbi of Kehilat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. Thank you so much for joining us and shedding some light on this. Thank you so much for having me.